Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. This Bible study is on Matthew chapter 1. It's all about the genealogy of Jesus and the virgin birth of Jesus. Let me give you some introduction first. The author is by a gentleman named Matthew. His name means gift of the Lord. He was a tax collector. He left his work to follow Jesus, as we see in Matthew chapter 9. And so he quit doing his dirty work and started preaching, it started spreading the kingdom of God. His other name was Levi. He's called by this in Mark and Luke. Where did he write his book? Either in Palestine, in the land of the Jews, or maybe a little bit north in Syria and Antioch. Many think it was in, in Antioch. The Jewish nature of the gospel is quite prominent, and so people say that maybe he wrote it from Palestine. Now, when did he write it? There's a split of opinion. There are two views based on the date, and these two views are are based on two different assumptions. Assumption number one, Matthew and Mark used, Matthew and Luke used Mark as a major source. This is a very common theory. Matthew's date then depends on when Mark was written. Now, there's two views on when Mark wrote. Some people say that Mark was written in the 50s or early 60s. And then, therefore, Matthew, if it was based on Mark, would be written in the late 50s or 60s. Some people say Mark was written in 65 to 70, and then Matthew was therefore written in the 70s. Okay, well, that's the assumption number one, that Matthew and Luke, that both that Matthew used Mark as a major source. Assumption number two is that Matthew, as well as Luke, did not use Mark as a major source. And then, if, if you assume that, then you have to say, well, then Matthew was probably written in the early 50s because it's so Jewish, and the church in the early 50s was largely Jewish before there was the influx of the Gentiles. Well, all of that is to say that I really don't care when Matthew was written. I like Bishop A.T. Robinson's view. He's the liberal scholar who apparently got saved right before he died and who finally decided that every book in the New Testament was written before AD 70. The liberals have started out with late dates, and as the decades have gone by, they've gotten the uh, their critical views have made the Gospels earlier and earlier and earlier, which makes me happy. So we're just going to assume that Luke Matthew was written between AD 50 and 70, which is about 20, 20, 30, 40 years after Jesus died. Now, who did he write to? Well, most probably it was Greek-speaking Christian Jews, Greek-speaking Christian Jews that he wrote to. Now, Matthew may have been written in Greek. It's disputed. A lot of people say he wrote it in Hebrew, and the Hebrew has been lost, and all we have is left is, is Greek manuscripts. Other people say that he wrote in Greek, and the Greek original is lost, and now we have Greek manuscripts. Well, I, I tend to think he wrote it in Greek. I don't really know. It doesn't really matter. The arguments that he wrote uh, to, uh, he was writing to Jews, specifically Jewish Christians, is because there are more quotations and allusions to the Old Testament than any other author, according to my NIV study Bible. However, I also have heard, I read by the theologian David Chilton, who said that John's book of Revelation had more quotes to the Old Testament than any other book. So I don't know. Let's just say this. Matthew and Revelation, the first and the last books of the New Testament, are chock full of quotations and allusions from the Old Testament. Um, another argument that Matthew was writing for Jews is that he traced the Jews Jesus' descent from Abraham. And, of course, Abraham was the father of the Jews. Another argument that he was writing to the Jews is that he did not explain Jewish customs, like Mark did, for example. And because he didn't ex uh, explain Jewish customs, he was assuming that his Jewish readership would understand those customs. And then there's also the argument that he was writing to a Jewish argument is his use of Jewish terminology. 
For example, um, the Jews would say kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God because t Jews were typically reluctant to use the name of God. And so they would say the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew always talks about the kingdom of heaven. Also, Matthew emphasizes another messianic term. Jesus is this, another Jewish term, Jewish messianic term. Jewish is the son of David, the son of David. He uses that expression a lot. All right, now, despite Matthew's outlook, a focus on the Jews, he had a universal outlook. For example, he had the Magi, who, of course, were non-Jews, who came from afar from Babylon, or Persia somewhere, uh, and they worshipped the infant Jesus, the famous wise men from the East. He mentioned that the field is the world, the famous wheat and tares argument. And by the way, it's wheat and tares is in the world, not the church. And he also mentions the Great Commission, go out and make disciples of all nations. So even though it's a Jewish-oriented book, Matthew still doesn't lose that universality of the gospel. What's the purpose of the book? It was to prove to Jewish readers that Jesus was the Messiah, plain and simple. And he primarily did this by showing how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures, and he quotes a lot of fulfillments. Now, what's the structure of the book? The book is woven around five great discourses. And at the end of each discourse, uh, there are these words, or something like these words, when Jesus had finished saying these things. Some, some people say he may have been modeling his, his book on the Pentateuch, which of course had five books. And he might have been presenting the gospel as a new Torah with Jesus as a new Moses, speaking on the Mount. Moses was on Mount Sinai. Jesus gave his sermon on the Mount. Well, I'll leave that to the biblical scholars. I don't know if that means anything or not, but I just give it to you as a matter of interest. Now, let's start with Matthew 1, verse 1. We're going to talk about genealogies. You say, oh, genealogies are boring. Well, actually, there's a lot of interesting stuff in this genealogy, and I'm going to point it out to you as we go through. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, verse 1 says. Now, this genealogy differs from Luke's genealogy and certain differences the main thing is luke was tracing the, his genealogy from adam to mary this is going from um i think is going from abraham i think uh to uh to joseph not mary so there are going to be differences in the two genealogies that doesn't mean there are contradictions in the bible now he he mentions that the messiah is the son of david but why does he mention the son of david of, of all the people he could have picked amongst jesus's ancestors is because the son of david is a messianic title it's used several times one two three four times i've got here in uh, matthew where he, where matthew mentions the son of david referring to the messiah uh, um John Gill says this, the, fam the commentator John Gill, nothing is more common in the Jewish writings than for son of David to stand alone for the Messiah. It would be endless to cite or refer to all the testimonies of this kind. So this, you could put this one in the bank, son of David is a messianic title. Now know that David is mentioned out of chronological order in this genealogy. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah and the first ancestor that's mentioned is David, even before Abraham. Abraham David was a thousand years after Abraham, and yet he's mentioned before Abraham. Why might that be? Well, uh, because, um, well, there's several options. One is, is because Matthew wanted to emphasize the messianic title of David, and that makes sense to me. Uh, it could be that David was prophet and king, and therefore he was greater than Abraham, who was only priest and prophet. Or it could be because we're, uh, Matthew's emphasizing Messiah, and the Messianic line eventually was restricted to the family of David, so he mentions David first. And I think that probably all those reasons are perfectly legitimate. 
Now with Abraham, with David and Abraham both listed here in verse 1 as a part of that genealogy, Jesus had prophet, priest, and king in his genealogy. And that is extremely important because Jesus is constantly seen as prophet, priest, and king. Let me give you a good quote from Adam Clark. No person ever born could boast in a direct line a more illustrious ancestry than Jesus Christ. Among his progenitors, the regal, sacerdotal, and prophetic offices existed in all their glory and splendor. David, the most renowned of sovereigns, was king and prophet. Abraham, the most perfect character in all antiquity, whether sacred or profane, was priest and prophet. But the three offices were never united except in the person of Christ. So there we have Jesus whose ancestors are prophet, priest, and king, and who now fulfill the offices of prophet, priest, and king. Jesus, again, is, as I said, is the son of Abraham, mentioned in verse 1. Why was this important to identify Jesus? Because Matthew was writing to Jews, and who was the father of the Jews? Abraham. In fact, uh, God had promised Abraham that he would have many seed or many descendants. They would come from him. And that's Genesis 15, Genesis 17. I've got a, uh, one of the quotes from Genesis 22. In your seed and your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So the Jews are going to have a lot of descendants. And of course, the seed, the one seed that's important is Jesus, who gets a lot of people saved. And now Jesus is the father of a bunch of Gentile believers in Abraham who have the faith of Abraham. And so... Thus, Abraham is extremely important. He's mentioned in the in the in the genealogies. Hebrews two sixteen says, "For assuredly he does not give help to angels," referring to God. This is in the book where uh, the author is trying to show that Jesus is superior to angels. So he says, "For surely he God does not give help to angels, but he God gives help to the descendant of Abraham, to the son of Abraham." He's talking we're talking about Jesus. All right, so now Jesus is also called the Messiah in verse 1. The King James has the Christ. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word for anointed. Now, I mentioned prophet, priest, and king. All three of those offices, and we're going to show you later when we get into this, all three uh, received anointing at the beginning of their uh, ministry, at the beginning, a beginning of their uh, a beginning of at the beginning time when they held that office. All right, um, let's go now to verse one. Uh, excuse me, verse two, three, and four. Verse two: Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. All right, and we're not going to go through every one of the gentlemen in these genealogies. We're going to mention some important ones. For example, Isaac. Now, you notice, notice Isaac was mentioned. Ishmael was not. You'll notice also in the in the genealogy, uh uh, where does it say here? Jacob is mentioned, but Esau is not. And the genealogy starts out with the, the, the first four entries, which, which everybody ought to learn if you're going to learn the Bible. That's Abraham, number one, Isaac, number two, Jacob, number three, and the sons of Jacob were the 12 tribes of Israel. 
All right, now, my point about Jacob, uh, Esau not being mentioned, and Ishmael not being mentioned, is that they were um, sons of the flesh, or people who were not in the line of the promise, let me put it that way. The promise had to go a certain way. And uh, so they're not mentioned because that's not important. In the Old Testament, what's important is that line of descent from Abraham to the seed, Abraham to Jesus. All right, Isaac was promised in Genesis 21. God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac your descendants will shall be named. The lad and your maid refers to um, Hagar and Ishmael, and, and he, of course, by pressure from Sarah, Abraham sent him out into the wilderness. But uh, God said, "Don't worry. Whatever Sarah says, listen to that, because it's through Isaac your descendants shall be named." And sure enough, Matthew is through Isaac naming the descendants of Abraham or all the way down to the seed of Jesus. Now notice that in verse 2, Judah is mentioned. Now why was Judah particularly singled out in this genealogy? Uh, because it had been particularly prophesied that the Messiah would spring from Judah. Genesis 49.10, this is when uh, Jacob is giving his um, famous blessings to his 12 children. Jacob says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Scepter means the right to rule, the iron rod that showed that you are the king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The kingship shall be in Judah. Nor shall the ruler staff from between his feet. Until Shiloh comes, that's the Messiah, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So that's referring to the birth of Jesus, who was of, actually, as prophesied, from the tribe of Judah, and he was king. All right, First Chronicles 5, 2 says the same thing. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader, yet the birthright belongs to Joseph. Uh, so from him, Judah, came the leader, the leader being the Messiah. He, All right, so that's enough of that. Uh, it's obvious that the king would come through Judah, and Judah is mentioned in the genealogies. Now, the brothers are mentioned here. Let me go to verse two, back to verse 2 again. Uh, it says, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah is particularly mentioned. The brothers are not. Uh, why are they not mentioned? Or why are they? Well, they're not mentioned in particular because Judah was the, was where the Messiah would come from. That's why they were not mentioned. Why were they even mentioned at all? Well, because they were of prominence because they were the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, of course, the 12 tribes of Israel is a huge thing all the way through the scriptures now the first members of these genealogies were pretty pretty important people and pretty good people abraham david and so forth but now let's get we're getting down to judah we're going to find out that jesus's genealogy had a lot of undesirable characters in it which has significance we'll start with judah he was one of the 12 sons of jacob one of the patriarchs one of the fathers of the 12 tribes he had sex with tamar his daughter-in-law tamar was wanting a kid she she dressed herself up as a prostitute by the side of the road seduced her own father-in-law had sex with him got pregnant you know the story it's all in genesis chapter 38 
That's not so good. Jesus' genealogy wasn't all illustrious. Uh, this reminds me, I'm from the South, and how oh, many times do we hear this? Oh, you, he's from good stock. He's from good stock. How many times have I heard that growing up? Well, let me tell you something. I, I can criticize my culture. If you're a Yankee, you don't say anything, but I'm a Southerner, so I can criticize my own culture, and I don't like that because I'm telling you, a lot of good people come from lousy stock. Jesus came from lousy stock. So, um, let's move on to some of the women that are introduced in this genealogy. Verse 3, Tamar is mentioned. I just mentioned that uh, she was the one that uh, had sex with Judah. Um, so she was, but now, it wasn't all Judah's fault. I mean, she after, she disguised herself as a prostitute and seduced him, so she was sexually immoral. And in the next couple of verses, we're going to see a couple of other women who were not so pure. Rahab was a prostitute. She's an innkeeper at least, probably a prostitute. And then, of course, we have Bathsheba, who committed adultery with David of Israel. So, Jesus' genealogy, Jesus' stock, had prostitutes and uh, adulteresses. Uh, uh, he had those kind of people, prostitutes and adulteresses, in his genealogy. All right, let's move on to verses 5 through 6. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Okay, um, now there's many generations that are omitted between Rahab and David. These are, these are not all of them mentioned in these verses, and we need to remember that. A lot of times people think that when it says father of and son of, it's direct uh, ancestors and descendants. That's not true. A father means ancestor and son means descendant. Uh, uh, Matthew has a scheme here of 14s, which we'll talk about when we get to verse 17. And in order to make that scheme work, sometimes he has to leave out some names in order to end up with 14 people in the genealogy. Now, we've already mentioned we got uh, women of ill repute in Jesus' genealogy. Uh, and a man of uh, less than reputable character, Judah, in Jesus' genealogy. Now we're going to show that there's Gentile dogs in the genealogy, which, of course, Jews are not appreciative of. Ruth, the Moabitess, is in there. We've already mentioned Rahab. She's in there, too. She was a Gentile. Uh, so, uh, again, God is not concerned with stock, who you're born of. He's concerned of faith. Do you believe in him? All right, so Matthew, this is one of the differences from Luke's genealogy. As a matter of fact, Matthew uh, differs from Luke because he includes outsiders, uh, the three fallen women and, and, and three fallen women and two Gentile women. This is appropriate probably because Matthew was an outsider. Remember, he was a tax collector. There could be nothing more outside than that. All right, um... Verse 6 here says, uh, Jesse was the father of David the king. Again, that kingship is mentioned, is emphasized. David the king, King David, because he was the fulfillment, he, he had the throne, and the throne of David is a key theological concept all throughout the Old Testament, and the New too. Remember, Jesus inherits the throne of David in Acts, the first couple of chapters of Acts. 
All right, going on with the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah, a Jeconiah, I should say, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Now, you might recognize some of the kings of Judah in here. Um, now, there was a th uh, three kings left out, Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah, and some people like to say, see there, Matthew is not accurate. Uh, well, leaving out generations was no big deal to the Jews. I've just pointed that out to you, that Matthew did it. Uh, he's not trying to be clever about it or making a mistake. No Jesus-rejecting Jew ever called out Matthew on that uh, because that's they understood. That's the way genealogies were done. Uh, here's a good quote from Adam Clark. As they were silent, talking about the Jews who were hostile to Christianity, as they were silent, modern and comparatively modern unbelievers may forever hold their peace. The objections raised on this head are worthy of no regard. Here, here, people love to point out errors. By the way, there are several places in here where there are some uh, problems that need to be worked out as far as the accuracy of the genealogies. They can be worked out unless you're a God-denying liberal Protestant or liberal Catholic, maybe. Uh, if you are an agnostic and atheist, you're probably not going to be listening to this anyway. But... Um, I'm going to mention one here. Uh, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. Actually, Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his uncles. Um, this is the last kings of uh, Judah, and they're hard to remember. Josiah uh, died, and he had a son named Jehoahaz who lasted for a little while to the until Necho of Egypt kicked him out and put Jehoiakim, his son, on the throne. Uh, excuse me, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim's brother, on the throne. And then Jehoiakim had a son, Jehoiachin, who inherited the throne. He got carried off into captivity to Babylon. And then uh, Nebuchadnezzar put Zedekiah, another son of Josiah, another one of the brothers there, on the throne. And so Jehoiachin had, he had uh, a couple uncles. He had um, Jehoahaz and Zedekiah. So they were his uncles, not his brothers. Now, how do you reconcile that? Well, let's see. Gill says that, um, that it's a manuscript problem, uh, that it should have said uncles instead of brothers. Or it could just be uh, a translation problem. Brothers actually means uncles. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say here that the brethren of Jeconiah here evidently mean his uncles. I remember in, uh, in China, there's a one word for cousin and there's one word for brother. And the Chinese, when they speak English, they were constantly calling, talking about their five brothers. And I think, well, I thought there was a one-child policy in China. And it turns out they were... They were confusing the word, and I suspect that's what happens here. It's, it's a minor importance, but I just point that out to you. If you're the type that likes to find errors in things, the Bible doesn't have any errors. 
There might be manuscript errors, but there's not any errors in the original manuscripts. Now, notice in verse 11, uh, Matthew mentions the time of the deportation to Babylon. That was when Israel was carried into captivity. Matthew doesn't use the word captivity. That would have been a very painful word for a Jew at that time. The captivity was a horrible time for them, so he euphemizes the word a little bit, and he, and he calls it the deportation to Babylon. I'm surprised he didn't call it the exodus. But anyway, or the departure to uh, to um, Babylon. Let's go to verse 12 through 16. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Ah, now we've got to somebody you might recognize. Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. Now, you notice the genealogy goes through Joseph. That's how it goes through. It, it, it doesn't go through Mary. It goes through Joseph, which um, uh, which is obvious here because Joseph is mentioned. Now, notice it mentions that Joseph is the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. Jesus was born. Matthew doesn't say the father of Joseph, the father of Jesus. Because Joseph wasn't the father of Jesus. He was his stepfather. Uh, Matthew clearly shows that that uh, Jesus was virgin born of Mary. Well, later he's going to show that she was virgin born. But right here, he, he very clearly shows that Joseph was not the father of Jesus. If he had been the father of Jesus, original sin would have passed through him down to Jesus. And our Messiah would be sinful and we wouldn't be saved from our sins. All right, Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Now, Messiah is, uh, as I said earlier, the Hebrew for that is the Hebrew word for anointed, and the Greek word is Christ, which means anointed. Now, there were three offices that were anointed in the Old Testament. Prophets, 1 Kings 19.16, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and Abel Maholai, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. There's a king and a prophet being anointed. Now, how about a priest? Leviticus 4, 5, then the anointed priest to take some of the blood of the bull. Leviticus 4, 16, then the anointed priest is to bring some of the blood of the bull to the tent of meeting. And on and on and on and on about anointed priest. That's obviously if you're familiar with the book of Leviticus. And as a king, I've already mentioned that verse, uh, 1 Kings 19, 16, mentioned the anointing of a king. Here's another one, 1 Samuel 24, 6. So he said to his men, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed. This is when David is trying to decide whether to strike Saul or not. David calls the king the Lord's anointed. Why? Because Saul was anointed as king. So when you hear anointed one, that word, you hear Christ, you don't, a Messiah, you know, that word doesn't have a lot of depth to the English year, but if you start thinking about anointed and how many, and that the prophet, the office of prophet, priest, and king were all anointed, and Jesus fulfills all three of those prophets, that means Jesus is our prophet, Jesus is our priest, Jesus is our king, that means the word carries a lot more meaning than otherwise, than, than uh, English speakers tend to give it. All right, so let's go to verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now there's Matthew's organizational structure of the book. 
Now, why did he choose the number 14? And this is where people disagree. Um, one option is that 14 is 2 times 7, a double 7, and 7 is the number of completeness all throughout the Old Testament. The number 7 is the divine number, the number of divine fullness and completeness and maturity and perfection, and he's doubling it to get 14. The NIV Study Bible chooses that for their option. The NIV Study Bible also says that 14 is the numerical value of the name David. Maybe that's why he did it, because David is the high point, the king uh, in this genealogy, that whose office Jesus was to inherit. Well, maybe that's so. Uh, or it's just uh, aid to memory, uh, because you, uh, Matthew arranged it so there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, and that David was, of course, a, a key event in the genealogy the, when David took the throne. And then David to the deportation in Babylon, that was going 586 B.C. when the Jews were carried to Babylon. That was a big deal. And then from Babylon to the arrival of the Messiah Jesus, another big deal. So big deals in history divided by 14 generations each. People could remember that. And so it was a mnemonic device according to this theory. So nobody really knows why the 14's there. There's some good speculations. Uh, and you notice to make the 14 scheme work, Matthew had to leave some names out here and there. All right, let's go to verse 8. Well, let's stop right here because that's the genealogies. We're going to, in the next uh, audio, I am going to take up the virgin birth of Jesus. I hope you enjoyed this Bible study.